Hello and welcome to Talking Scared. I'm your host, Neil McRobert, and I'm offering you this pulsating, chewed-upon heart for Valentine's Day. I'm so proud to say that our guest is none other than Mariana Enrique. I get a lot of people writing to me requesting certain authors on this show, and Mariana's name has been right up there at the top of the list of most demanded for a while. So when I heard she was publishing her first novel in translation, I kind of jumped at the chance to invite her on to talk about it, and I was astounded when she said yes, and then daunted as hell to find out that the book in question is seriously mammoth. It's called Our Share of Night, and it's 700 plus pages of densely layered storytelling that takes in everything from the Argentinian junta to 60s Brit psychedelia and some seriously nasty Patagonian lore. It's been out in the UK for a good few months now, but it's just getting released in the US, so my British listeners may have read this book, my US listeners are in for a quite challenging treat. This ranks amongst the most unstructured conversations I've had on Talking Scared. I just sort of say some words and then let Mariana let rip. But to give you an idea, we cover her current boredom with the short story, the double standard of harming kids in fiction, houses that eat people, Freddy Krueger and Heathcliff, and why horror is inevitable in Argentinian fiction. But that's just the tip of this coal black iceberg. Before we proceed, remember, if you want extra Talking Scared, including Mariana answering questions on her favourite authors and who she'd like to write her obituary, you can sign up to Patreon at patreon.com slash talkingscaredpod. As ever, I'm hugely appreciative of any listeners who do. Thanks. But now, off we go to Buenos Aires in the early 80s, where black sorcery and political terror are two sides of the same devil's coin. Let's talk scared. Hi, Mariana, and welcome to Talking Scared. How are you today? I'm okay. I'm in Buenos Aires. Uh, Thank you for the invitation. I'm in Buenos Aires. It's summer here, of course. I'm very hot. (laughs) Uh, and I'm very pleased to invite me for this. This conversation feels like it's been a long time coming. We we first made contact in like the middle of last summer, or it would have been your winter, mm-hmm. um, after Paul Tremblay recommended I read your novel Our Share of Night. He said it was the best book he read last year. That book came out in the UK last October, and it's about to be released in the US. So it seems... Yeah. Seems a good time to talk because my countrymen will have read it and people in the US will be salivating to read it. So, yeah, it's it's good timing. Thanks. I hope I can do justice because God knows where to start with a book of this size and scale and complexity. I, the, the best place as ever is with you. So in your words, can you introduce the listener to our share of night? Yeah. Uh, maybe a good introduction is how it was conceived, in a way. I, I was uh, writing a lot of uh, short stories. I think the, the short stories are published in English. And uh, I was kind of, yeah, tired, bored of the format. And I wanted to go back to a long novel 
not that I wrote a novel of 700 pages before, but, you know, I wrote some novels before. And uh, I wanted to do a genre, a novel for the first time because the, uh, my other novels, horrific things happen, but they're not genre uh, novels. They're just, mm-hmm. you know, twisted. So I started basically with the genre stuff. I started with the main um, plot in the novel is there is this organization that is called The Order. It's all in very simple terms because I don't want to to be very specific, but to use terms that are very easy to, to, to understand that also metaphoric in a way. There is this order of very rich people, half of them are British, half of them are Argentinian, and there's people from other places, but the protagonists are these people that control everything. I mean, control... Um, lives of people, land, money, whatever you want. They've been doing this for a lot of time and they serve a god that is basically a formless god. I won't tell what he does, but they think this formless, the, this uh, god talks to them, but it talks through a medium. Uh, and uh, and then came the story of who was this medium that was a man that was a young man very ill with a boy uh, a little boy so the 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 novel starts with the journey of this man and this little boy that they just uh, lost um, he lost his wife and and the mama of of the of the boy that is six and this is in the middle of Argentina's dictatorship so last dictatorship in the in the 70s 80s so it can go in a lot of ways metaphorically as in what it means politically you know to have a class uh very cruel people ruling uh, a territory with international connections and what they do to the bodies of the people they control but it's not it's not a metaphor of politics it's a horror novel that uses part of the history and social reality of my country and my continent, in a way, uh, to talk about it through this genre that I think is the, for me, is, is the more, the most um, adequate, let's say, to talk about these cruel things that happened here and still happen somehow. Cool. And I say cool because I made like a list of notes to kind of pick up yeah. on in this conversation and you've touched on on all of them. So so that's that's a good sign because it means that I've at least read this book in a relatively correct way. <laughs> um, <laughs> but let, let's progress through some of the stuff you've said there because it, yeah. it makes for, I think, the spine of a good conversation. Before we get to the actual story and the genre and all that cool stuff, um, I need to begin with a confession, right? Because mm-hmm. I am yet to read either of your short story collections, despite everyone telling me they are like the best short story collections written in, in recent memory. I, I'm yet to read them. For, for listeners who don't know, they are called Things We Lost in the Fire and The Dangers of Smoking in Bed. And I, I fully intended to read them before this interview, but then you released a 750-page novel, so my time was limited (laughs) yeah yeah. but because this was my intro into your work my 
perception of you as a storyteller is all grand canvases and rich mythologies and scale. Yet for most readers of yours in English, you'll be the opposite. Yeah. Did you always plan to go for such a big maximalist story or did that just happen? Was that just what the story dictated? I always wanted to, but to to do it in the the way I, I wanted to do it with all, you know, its proper mythology, its proper world, a lot of mythology that is, uh, let's say, real, um, generations, characters, a family story, you know. Uh, well, I needed a lot of technique, time, reading, you know, it was like, uh, but it was something I was really looking forward to, but mm-hmm. I needed to have the right time to do it. And it um, really came after the, the the short stories because of this that I was telling you about. I was bored and I was like, well, I really have to go to in, into a new direction. The short stories are, um, they, they use many of, of the things that are in the novel. They are quite cruel. There is a lot of body horror. There is a lot of, um, uh, you know, beliefs from mythological beliefs from, especially from Latin America, etc. But they are somehow different. They are like songs. This is like a, you know, a very very long album, like you know, four vinyls or something. So. Um, yeah, I really, I, I was looking for the right moment to do something like this, and and it happened. But I was looking for it. It's, it was just, it's just, it's just a very long enterprise, <laughs> and it, it's a very long enterprise. Also mentally, it's, it's like you say, well, okay, I will dedicate three years of my life only to this, obsessing to this. Uh, investigating these, like going crazy about this, about the structure of this, you know, I'm finishing it and telling, and people telling me it's too long, like, you know, you should, and I wanted it to be too long. I don't really care about, you know, um, these are concerns of the, I don't know, market. I mean, mm-hmm. I, I, I really want to do, uh, what I need to do for, for the story that I'm telling, and this is long. So, uh, yeah, I, I was looking for it for a long time, I think. Well, I mean, I love a long book. The first two books I read this year were yours and um, Stephen Markley's The Deluge. So it was like 750 okay. pages and 900 pages. <laughs> I like a long book. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. But, I mean, you really do take advantage of the scale of the book here because the novel runs from like the, the, the 70s all the way through to the, the late 90s. And yeah. for a lot, a lot of that is a period of, as you mentioned, state oppression and dictatorship and murder and these, these horrible disappearances in Argentina. Um, mm-hmm. It's not a period of social history I know all that much about. And, and you don't really emphatically bring it to the foreground of the book. It's very much a kind of background behind everything that's happening. Um, But I I believe a significant amount of your short fiction is also set against that backdrop. And I suppose my question, however, however crude it may be, is does being a horror writer in Argentina of Hmm. your generation make 
that backdrop inevitable in your fiction? Unfortunate, I say unfortunately because I think it's a, a sort of limitation, and uh, unfortunately, yes, especially because I'm I'm about to be fifty at the end of the year. No, no, and so I'm still in my forties. But anyway, the all my childhood, then almost the entirety of my childhood was during the dictatorship. That kind of the dictatorship was from seventy six to eighty three. Mm-hmm. includes the Falklands War or Malvinas War, as we call it. All this period, uh, coincidental with, with my childhood, was very formative in terms of emotional everything. And uh, normalizing horror in a very uh, specific way. For example, to, to celebrate my birthday when I was little, my parents, and sometimes I went with them, they had to go to the police station to ask for permission because it was prohibited to be, to have a reunion of more than four people. So to me, that was normal. But I knew it was not because I knew that before it wasn't like that because I heard, you know, older people talking about how it wasn't like that before. So I was all the time wondering what was going on. And the whole atmosphere was a gray atmosphere, was an atmosphere full of dread. It was an atmosphere full of fear. Um, people didn't really talk about what's going on, but the words they used were very uh, significant, especially when you're absorbing everything as a child and trying to understand the world. This is my first understanding of the world. And so it was kind of trying to guess what this horror that was happening was and I remember my father they knew about it many people didn't know and other people uh, pretended that they didn't know what was going on because all the the kidnappings and the and the disappearances of of the activists of the left-wing activists they were done in secret in the middle of the night the places where they were prisoners were clandestine that is all very obvious in in the movie, and in the movie, sorry, in the in the in the novel movie, I call it, yeah. <laughs> but at this, because it's in my head, it's in the, it's a movie. But at the same time, we're very mysterious, like like they are in the in the novel. You don't really know these things are are happening. So, and my father used to say, let's say Paul. Paul was taken. That was the the word for the kidnapping. That was like the cold cold word, you know, to not say he disappeared or because at that point we didn't really know if he's going to come back we still i mean the the still the, the the bodies haven't appeared so i know some people that have parents that are disappeared that sometimes tell me things like i know he or she is dead but sometimes when i hear footsteps i think they're coming back this is absolutely phantasmagoric and eerie so that as a first trauma, that is a personal trauma and a social trauma, never leaves you. The thing is like how you talk about it afterwards when you deal with words and deal with stories. So this is a mark, like a scar that it's on you. And, you know, the dictatorship doesn't end when it ends. Then it ends in 83 and then comes all the info. We have democracy and we have all the information you know, about what happened, how they tortured people. I remember myself looking for the word torture in dictionaries. There was investigations of human rights organizations that were published and they were sold in kiosks 
in, in the street and they were, I always say they were the first horror things I've read because they described it. It's the movie that is now nominated for the Oscar that's called Argentina 1985 that is about how it was decided to take all these people to to trial, the dictators, but that was not the most scary part because they were completely mute. The thing were the victims. The victims mm-hmm. were there and they were telling what was going on. Still was very early for it to be on TV, but every night on the radio, there were the voices of the victims telling this. And I was listening to them because the, the, the society was so crazy that it never occurred to anybody, not even the parents, that maybe the children should be sheltered from this. <laughs> <laughs> so that was something that I think even when we try to avoid it, it appears, you know, like a ghost or like trauma. You try to avoid it, but it comes back. And it comes back in, in, in different ways. I don't think it's up front in this novel. I think it's very far in the back, but it's there, yes. Completely. I, I get that. But at the same time, you, you said right at the start that this novel isn't an allegory or a metaphor for politics. Yet, hmm. it, is, it is from an external position. It is quite hard to read your book and then, like, read the Wikipedia page about the junta and the dirty war and all this stuff, and and yeah. not to see the order this this cult as a metaphor for the dictatorship, but at the same time, there's a very real world practical relationship between them in the book, isn't there? Because mm-hmm. you know the order needs sacrifices who won't be looked for. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, and the dictatorship, in, in your words, offers, quote, fresh alibis, bodies and currents of pain. So it seems like that relationship between the order and the dictatorship is both metaphorical, and but at the same time also very practical. Yeah, it's transactional. It's like, uh, you know, they they would do it. The order would do it with anybody. That's that's kind of the point. If with any authoritarian regime that, that, that does whatever cruel thing they need to do, if the order is there, they will have dealings with them because they need, you know, bodies, suffering, secret, secrecy. They can get a lot of that with uh, with their money. If you also have the protection of politics or of the people in power in politics, even better. Because, uh, because it's also, when I was investigating, it's also very uh, telling that when uh, authoritarian regimes start to lose power because people start to lose fear or their own contradictions start to destroy them inside, they go to the occult. It's uh, quite amazing. To go out of Argentina, I remember Pinochet, I remember when in the final days of his dictatorship in Chile, he invented, uh, sort of, a boy uh, in southern Chile that could see the Virgin, I remember, to to, to distract the people. So everybody was obsessed with this boy that could, you know, see the Virgin. The, The boy ended up you know, dressing up as the Virgin, and it was uh, all a complete mess after that. <laughs> but anyway, they kind of go through religious things, uh, you know, not rational things, because um, 
that's what, what what keeps people distracted and fascinated in a way. So yeah, I, I mean it's not metaphoric, but it's related, let's say. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think it's it's not metaphoric because there's so many other things, and because uh, also Argentinian dictatorship are not the only bad guys out there. Let's say, <laughs> yeah, it could be yeah. anybody. Well, it it actually struck me as quite interesting that the order is founded by the British. (laughs) Um, Yeah. Because these two families, like the the Mathers and the Bradfords, are like the big kahunas in the cult. And they've, well, the Bradfords certainly have have come to Argentina and they've imported their dark magic into Argentina. And I've interviewed a number of people, you know, Silvia Marino-Garcia, Isabel Cañas, uh, Latin writers who have who have written about the Gothic colonialism of mm-hmm. South America and Latin America by the British. Um, but what I found really interesting in your book is that they bring the dark magic with them because, you know, British literature has so often treated the rest of the world as the place where dark magic comes from. Yeah. I thought it was interesting that you inverted that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you're right. They They bring it with them. Um, as you know, Argentina and Britain had a very intense relationship yeah. Yeah. Uh, in the in in the in the 19th century and the first decades of the 20th century. Uh, Argentina was not a, 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 an official colony, but it, it worked as one. Very cruelly, I think one or uh, one uh, I can't remember the name. But one British official said Argentina is great because it's a colony that we don't have to, um, you know, we don't have to put institutions there for them to be ruled. Mm. <laughs> they just do it themselves, which also speaks quite bad of us. But they made the trains. The British made the trains. Um, I live two blocks from, from a neighborhood that's called the British neighborhood because it's all like Edwardian kind of houses. Uh, Borges was absolutely fascinated by British literature. It was a very intense relationship. And then Britain left. And it's kind of, we were like left to our South American destiny in a way, in a way you know. And then, of course, it's the war in, in the 80s. It was very brief and very probably unimportant uh, for Britain, but very except for the people that, you know, were in the war. But mm-hmm. it was very traumatic for us because we haven't had wars in, you know, a long time, a century or something like that. And it was a, a war of the of the dictatorship to try to gain back uh, power, let's say. But I was fascinated. All my life I've been fascinated by the Brontes, uh, <laughs> by Mary Shelley, um, in every way, like their lives and the Lord Byron. Uh, I mean, my first novel, there's a cat called Lord Byron, which is a very long name for a cat anyway, but well, this is his name. And I, of course, speak English and I went to, I have a bad accent, but I went to, to a bilingual school. Uh, it was not cool to speak English when I was, when I was little. It was French was the was the you know but my, my parents didn't have money for a french school that was very posh let's say so they sent me to <laughs> to british school that was kind of they needed me out of the house because they were working all day 
So I went in the morning to, to everything in English school and in the afternoon to normal school. And I was fascinated, especially for this, for this novel with Victorian England, spiritualism in Victorian England, women in spiritualism in, in Victorian England, the Golden Dawn, Aleister Crowley, Yeats, yes. Sam Stoker, <laughs> Arthur Machen, etc., and from there, you know, all the people that follow them, from Alan Moore to Ian Sinclair. I mean, this is like a thing. And I don't, um, like, I don't need, I think, in, when I write fiction, to be very political about it. Because to me, it's very clear. It's very clear that there was a, a colonial relationship. It's very, I don't really like to be, you know, underlining things all the time. Yeah, sure. Like people should know about it already. We are in mm -hmm. 2022. We know how the relationships of power are. And I don't want to be a writer that's pointing the finger all the time and say, you did bad. I, I mean, this is how it is. And yes, this is the relationship we had with Britain. And this is a thing that we have to think about. But my favorite writer is Emily Bronte, okay? It's not a writer from uh, here. <laughs> so, yeah. For the record, Wuthering Heights is my favorite British novel, so I think we're on the same page. <laughs> yes. As, if, if ever I speak to someone who's, who's a fan of the Brontes, I always love telling them that I live about 10 miles from the village in which they grew up. In which No, you, know, you don't. In Howard. Yeah, in Howard. Oh. Yeah, I'm about, I live about 10 miles away, and it's basically the backdrop. Um for if you look at my back window, you can just see the same moors that inspired Wuthering Heights. So it's, okay, uh, I'm going to visit you then. Yeah, I, I will take you to Haworth, no problem. Yeah, <laughs> I, I feel like we've discharged with the political metaphor, whatever. I've discharged my, my my need to kind of get my British guilt off my chest. We've done, we've dealt with that. We can we can just move on. Yeah, yeah, don't worry. Yeah, <laughs> because reg regardless of where they're coming from, regardless of their background, the, you know, the order and the, the Reyes family, who are well, well, we'll get into the Reyes family. You know, they're the ultimate bourgeoisie in this exactly. fight against the left. Yeah. yeah, and I suppose more importantly for a horror podcast, they are incredibly cruel and. Yeah. It's been a while since I've had a book on this show where we can really talk about some heinous shit. <laughs> so, so let's let's get into sort of like the, the the extremity of some of this horror because I was shocked by how dark things get in parts, and it, it takes a mm. fair bit to shock me. But this is a big old book, and you get long sections where it's fantastical and it's creepy, but nothing necessarily horrible happens and then out of nowhere like the most abject stuff and I read a recent interview with you in the Guardian and they asked you a question that really annoyed me <laughs> <laughs> they, they, they asked you whether the historical atrocities in Argentina justified that's the word they use whether they justified the graphic scenes in your book and there are some extremely graphic moments in our share of movie, yeah. but I resent the idea that they need to be justified in any way beyond the story. Now, exactly. you may feel differently, but how do you feel about questions and comments like those? No, I really don't like them either because it's like, you know, telling you, you are 
a writer from South America where these horrible things happen. So you understand this cruelty better than we, that we are so clean and nice. This doesn't only come from a question in The Guardian. It happens a lot. And to me, it's kind of, what are we talking about here? Like, for, for, for I don't know. It happens, it's a question that they could make me in Spain. And we're, you know, we're having an interview 20 miles from a mass grave that hasn't been open in 60 years, 70 years. And, you know, a lot of people that don't have graves or names and they were killed in a horrible way, sometimes in front of their little brothers. So what are we talking about when you're saying justified or you can understand cruelty better because you uh, kind of know about the details of the dictatorship? Mm -hmm. It's a decision, and it's a decision within the fiction. These people are extremely cruel. The inspiration of the order is Golden Dawn, quite obviously. But the Golden Dawn, they were not cruel. They were just doing their things. and. Uh, they were practicing magic. They were not cruel. But I, I needed some kind of the, you know, the old idea of blood and sacrifice. And, and basically, I think, and this is not spoiling, but one of the characters uh, believes that it's a mark of class to be amoral, mm. to be, you know, beyond the preoccupations of uh, morality, good and evil, and being completely immoral and completely cruel was a mark of class because you are above all the uh, you know, um, preoccupations and ethics of the commoners. You are a god. You drown people. You don't care. So, um, of course, the cruelty is not justified because of when I, I come from. The genre sometimes, when you have to tell a story that needs, I think the story needs cruelty to get you to where it has to go. So to me, um, the justification, let's say, is literary. And also, I don't think you have to justify things in, in a moral way when you're writing fiction. This really annoys me. I mean... You have to, um, I'm not, the things are very cruel, but I'm not being cruel. <laughs> Me as a writer, if you can't handle it because you don't like it, don't read it. It's okay. But, I mean, it doesn't have to be justified. I don't, I don't know. It's very, it's a, it's, it's a very complicated thing because we are kind of putting lately, I think, a lot of, um, you need you, like you need to justify things in, in a fiction because it uh, people get upset. I think it's because you are someone who straddles what. Oh, put it, I'll put it a different way because I have I have issues with these terms, right? So, but from from the literary establishment's angle, I think you are someone who straddles the genre and the supposed literary mm -hmm. and i f i feel like that comes with it a sense of uh, 
of hierarchy, you know, that as if you are as yeah. if you are a writer who is dipping a toe into genre when in fact you're you're more concerned with this rarefied literary thing. And and I think perhaps the the, the cruelty in your book shocked that, that particular journalist more because they think of you as not a horror writer in the dismissive way that they may consider most horror writers, if that makes sense. Yeah. As if you're sullying your own talent in some way. Yeah, 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 I get that a lot. And it is yeah. like that, yes. It is, why do you go so far? Why, why do you, you know, because it's, because I'm writing horror, man. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. you know, and yeah, it's, it's it's a decision. I love the genre. It's, it's a popular genre. It's a genre that people love. It's not, uh, to me, there's no high, low literature. All those things really annoy me. And to me, they mm-hmm. doesn't exist. Well, I, I don't think you need to justify anything, right? Um, I did find certain scenes genuinely shocking, but that's yeah, that yeah, is a, yeah. that, that's a kind of badge of honour from me because it, it takes a lot <laughs> me in words. Uh, I mean, there is a lot of cruelty towards children in this book, uh, a yeah. lot, and and I couldn't work out whether you were being actively provocative or whether it was just the worst thing that your mind could conjure and it was the best way to display how evil and callous these people are. I think, first of all, children are kind of a trope in, in horror, but... what? But they're a trope that a lot of people are too afraid to, to go after. You know, it takes a certain degree of, of bravery to commit to that. Yeah, probably. But I think what happens is that there's a double, double standard when it comes to, to children and childhood. There's like this um, consensus that a child shouldn't be touched in any way should be taken care of I'm, I absolutely agree with all of this but at the same time I get out in Buenos Aires that it's a very beautiful city it has a lot of poor and very rich people living here it's a you know South American metropolis and there's thousands of children living in the street smoking doing drugs they're six they're five asking for money being absolutely abandoned and absolutely vulnerable. And at the same time, I go into social media and there's a lot of mummies telling me what kind of little bed I have to use for the child. And to me, that contradiction, you know, of these are the children that are valid and these are the children that we're saving and these are the children that we are dumping. This to me, is much more cruel than anything that I can put in the book. And yes, I was thinking about that, for sure. And uh, and it's not only the children in in South America, it's the children in, you know, in mines in in Africa that are, you know, making this conversation possible with lithium taken from the pits. Mm -hmm. And all that, to me, uh, is much more cruel and it's real than what you do uh, in a novel. Of course, in the, in the context of a horror novel, you go very far. But is it not that, go- I mean, living your whole childhood in the street and, and smoking crack at six, is it not that extreme? I mean, and this is real. So why is it more horrifying in a page than in reality? It's more horrifying in a page because the page focuses you because fiction produces 
this kind of magic that makes it more real than reality. And because um, I think if literature is worth something, it's worth, yeah, in a, in a way, shocking you with something that is already there, but you prefer to not pay attention to in these terms, you know? It's like, mm-hmm. how can you do this to children? I'm not doing anything to children. I'm just writing about it. I don't have children myself, and I never wanted to have children myself. And I noticed that many of my friends that do have children can't read some of the parts because they're like, okay, I can't. And, and I totally understand that. You know, My best friend doesn't have children either, but he can't. Uh, see anything when they are killing dogs because he mm-hmm. has like a thousand dogs or something that's like that. me i can't read anything to do with animal cruelty but yeah, yeah can... i mean yeah yeah i mean i and i and i i totally understand it that you can when you can't but i don't really think that writing about cruelty with children is a limit uh-huh. because it's not a limit in reality so it shouldn't that's... be a limit in fiction it's a very it's cowardice to be to make it a, a limit in fiction. Yeah, I don't think I considered it in that way before. That the way you put that, yeah, it's not a limit in reality. So that that's very true. I'm going to think on that in the future. Yeah, <laughs> I I have a friend who I um she has two young children, and I lent yeah. her my copy of Stephen King's The Stand. And yeah, you, you know you know there's a section where the little boy falls down the well and dies. Yeah, she she called me furious that I'd given her that book to read. It hadn't even occurred to me that that would upset her. It hadn't even crossed my mind, but she was furious that I'd given it to her. Um, But ever (laughs) since then, this is why I'm making a point of telling people that there are these scenes, because I know there are some people for whom it may be too much. You make a great point that fiction focuses the mind on one character and we can, somehow it then becomes too much. Yeah. Well, I mean, you know what? That, that, That brings us in a roundabout way to the, the figure of the unbunche or invunche, yeah. which is, is something I've been so excited to speak to you about. I first came across this piece of folklore like 10 years ago, and I've been trying to turn it into a story for myself ever since. And I was reading your book, and there's a section where it mentioned a kind of child that had been deformed in a certain way. And I was like, oh my God, is this going to be what I think it is? And then it, it was. And I, I sent you an email like at like three in the morning because I was so excited by it. Yeah. Can you tell, or would you like to tell the listeners about the utter depravity of the imbunche of Chiloé? Okay. Yeah, well, Chiloé is, is an island in the south of Chile. This is like a, like a side note, but amazingly, the first times I read about it were once in um, Swamp Thing by Alan Moore, and the second time in, in Patagonia by Bruce Chadwin. Yeah. Uh, people here were not really using it, and there you can tell how much of the literature despises beliefs, local beliefs, because they consider them superstition. I don't know. Okay. In Chiloé, supposedly, the island is ruled by an order, let's say, of witches. They're male. And uh, one of the things that happens, apart from uh, all kinds of tortures they do, is that they live in a cave, and in this cave is um, protected by this being called Imbunche. That is not the Imbunche is not 
a supernatural being. Well, it end up it end up being a one because of what they do to him. But what he really is is a child. It's a little child that they kidnap and they deform. Basically, the the head is kind of twisted back backwards. No, like in The Exorcist, mm-hmm. and um, also the both arms, uh, and they cut the tongue in two, like a serpent tongue. And uh, somehow this is weird to explain, especially my English is not that good. But they kind of make a hole in the elbow or, or under, you know, in that area. So they put the arm there, so it kind of it's a really twisted thing that the arm goes through the hole, so it goes to the back, or mm. something like that. It's very ugly. And uh, and they also do that with the leg, so the thing can't really walk. It always crawls. Hasn't le- they don't let him talk, and they feed him um, human, f- uh, human blood and first uh, animal flesh, raw, and then human flesh. And um, he supposedly protects the cave where where, where the witches are. And uh, sometimes he goes around screaming. <laughs> uh, and people uh, really are scared of it. Uh, if you want to enter the cave, you have to go past the Invunche, like it's like the, you know, the guardian of hell in a way. And you have to... This is a very like uh, kind of funny twist to the thing. You have to kiss his ass. Uh, <laughs> I, I uh, didn't know that part. Yeah, uh, like the devil, you know. And uh, yeah, but it's, but it's a human creature that the during when it grows, they put to it obviously for it not to die after they twisted it like that. It has to be you know some kind of magic to keep it alive. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I use it in the. I use it in the novel as, as the guardian of certain cave where atrocities happen. And then they talk about the whole lore of Chiloe because I love it. And mm. I, when I found about it, I was absolutely blown away by it. And I was also blown away by the fact that it wasn't that used in, in local literature. I didn't understand why. Well, it's so dark, isn't it? And I, I didn't realise it, it wasn't is. used. But it's such a dark story. And the, the, the one... The cool thing about it for me, and it, it, well, cool might be the wrong word for a story about a tortured child, but the, the fascinating thing is where the fact and fiction blur into each other because I I strongly hope that the Mbunche is nonsense. But <laughs> the, the whole idea of whether the, the Brujas of Chiloé or the Warlocks of Chiloé, whether they exist or not, seems to be open to some kind of debate because um, I came across it in Chatwin's book. and yeah. I don't know if this is true or not, but it in that book it says that Chiloé was the location for the last ever witch trial um, yeah, in, in human yeah. history. Um, yeah. So it does look like there was at least some historical precedent, even if it was racism and colonialism and it was all distorted. There is at least something there to underpin the story, which I find quite interesting. But you can't find that much information about it. There are a few articles. There's one by the Smithsonian, but there's there's just not that much info to read about it. 
there's not even that much info in in Spanish because it's kind of a you know there's many apart from Mexico that it's kind of some in the hierarchy of local beliefs it's the I think it's the only one because they had civilization this is you know very uh, Eurocentric kind of kind of view because they had the the big civilization so they deserve to be investigated. But the, this is these are kind of in a way little laws. They are beliefs. They don't you don't have a pyramid. You don't have gold. Mm-hmm. You don't have. So apart from Peru and, and and Mexico, the rest of the of of the continent is very like superstitions. But what is true is that that thing that there was the last witch trial that ever happened, and also in the south uh, of the. Of, of the continent, there were as many, of course, uh, original people. So one of them, the Mapuches, that are the big ones. Uh, they are still very much alive. Their uh, beliefs are very much alive. And as every, you know, pre-Christian system of, of beliefs, nothing is good or bad. Everything is kind of uh, ambiguous. And they have a lot of figures of evil that are very scary. And they have... Mm. Witches, they have warlocks. What the warlocks do in Mapuche um, lore is they can make their heads fly in the night. So uh, this is called chonchon, the thing that flies. But when you see it, the body of, of the witch is lying headless in the house and the, you know, the head goes around doing evil deeds. When you see it, it looks... Like an owl. <laughs> okay. So yeah, so so it can it can uh, it poses itself in your window and you look at and it's a head. <laughs> and this is something that really people I don't know if they believe, but they kind of say, "Oh, there's a chon chon, uh, you know, around tonight," and it's kind of very creepy. And there's many things like that. There's many things that are. Um, you know that kind of have a festival of you know of of mysticism and horror and a complete story because the warlocks in in Chiloé they have their own uh, ship that is called the Caleuche and to enter the, se- the the it's a sect basically it's a you know the order let's say you have to kill your best friend skin him and do like a little T-shirt or something with his skin. <laughs> And it, it's phosphorescent in the night. And I think there's a lot of those kind of things in the order to apart in the order of my book, let's say, apart mm. from the apart from the, the, the political and uh, social metaphor that of course it's there. It's a mixture. I fi- I find this uh, mythology very, very cruel. And even you know, at the beginning of, of the book, they talk a, a lot about other mythology that is in the north. And, you know, I don't know if Britain has a national flower, but we kind of have these things. And our, our national flower is a red flower that we call Seibo, that is, you know, original from here. And the supposed origin of this flower is uh, Guarani princess. Guarani is one of the original peoples that fell in love with a Spaniard and they, it, this is, was so wrong that they killed him and they burned him 
they burned her, sorry. They tied her to a tree and they burned her. And the tree and she burned, but the next day a red flower came. And that flower is our national flower. All the, uh, this uh, I learned in school. Uh, it was, you know, the myth of the national flower. <laughs> so uh, all these kinds of things, I think they are a lot more in the narrative that, uh, or, or, or at the same level mm-hmm. that the other social political cruelties. Not everybody and not every reader in, not even here, knows about this. It's because I, you know, kind of uh, like these things and investigate yeah. these things. Yeah, you're like me, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and I use them in, in the genre, I use them in, in horror. So so that's basically why I said to, to you, no, it's not metaphor. It's kind of, this comes from the oral stories. This comes from our mythology. This comes from, you know, those very, very old stories that many of them were horror and many of them were, be careful. You know, it, it was a, that that kind of of thing that is also in fairy tales, but these are fairy tales gone absolutely crazy. With all that in mind, it, it gives some texture to how you came up with the the acts of cruelty that you do in this novel. Mm. Um, but the the cruelty doesn't, and we keep using that word cruelty. But it, it's the only. Yeah. It's not just violence; it's particularly cruel no. violence. You know, yeah, yeah, yeah. and it 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 doesn't really stop with the supposed villains with the order because one of the challenges of this book is that there are very few points of view from outside the order yeah even our supposed heroes are complicit and we haven't actually talked about characters much yet but you've got gaspar who is this young boy that we follow on a kind of coming of age story you've got his father juan who is the medium mm-hmm. that you mentioned, and, and there's Gaspar's mother, Rosario. And Juan and Rosario want to protect Gaspar, but they're still part of the order. And, for example, they know about, you know, the Unbunche and the, the children in cages. Yeah. And yet they still, in quotation marks, have fun all summer. Because this is kind of love story. And I'm like, how could they just fall in love when they know that in like a tunnel just a few hundred yards away on this estate this absolute depravity is occurring and i just wondered is the idea that the order is this corruption that no one can escape that no one can be free of implication yeah in a way it is in in a way it is this idea that the horrific things happen around us and we go on in a way not just mm. the order but you know like um there's a certain amount of empathy that you can have, and then it's, you know, the the well is dry. You can you can you know uh, wake up every morning crying about every awful thing that happens to every creature on this planet. So in a small small scale, this is what happens to them. Also, they are from the order. They are they were raised there. They. Maybe they don't share many of their things, but mostly I think, or when I was writing, it was because of that, because they're young. And they're young in the 60s, so they're part of, you know, trying to change the way of the fathers, but then they kind of became their fathers, didn't they? The people so you, that you, were young you in keep, the 60s. You keep 
kind of under undermining your own point that, that this isn't a metaphor <laughs> because <laughs> that that sounds like a metaphor to me you know that how how the boomers became who they are how the post-war generation went wrong how the idealism of the 60s fell away yeah. you know it, it, it's all there and yeah yeah probably you know, it is a metaphor i don't know <laughs> but you know i i just i just don't like i think i insist a lot in the thing that it's not a metaphor because i don't i really i mean i really like to defend horror as it is mm-hmm. yeah and i get I what you say really and I don't really like to, you know, like you're a literary writer wasting yourself in, mm. in horrors. No, I love this genre. And this is the genre that should have the hierarchy of the others. And uh, sometimes what they do, the literary critics is say, you use met- you, you're, you're using the, 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 the genre as a metaphor. And that's maybe... Mm. That's why I react so much, and maybe all horror is a metaphor of something that you know. But in a way, the specific that is something specific at the same time, and it's not less. So that's why I, I keep on. But maybe it is. Yeah, I get you. <laughs> but maybe it is. A thing I read recently said that this whole thing about elevated horror, this nonsense term. Exactly. Um, yeah. I heard someone say that what's actually happened is horror has become this thing now where the stuff that is respected has a singular metaphorical purpose, whereas horror of the past has had kind of like an endlessly mutable, changeable metaphorical purpose. You look at Dracula. Dracula can represent everything from Irish immigrants to Jewish immigrants to HIV to anything you want, you know, whereas now it seems like people are increasingly making films that, that critics are imposing a very singular metaphor on. And I think that's quite damaging to the longevity of a story. Um, exactly, exactly. Or in... slashers, for example. I'm not a big, a enormous fan of slashers because I think they're repetitive. But they say something about violence against mm-hmm. women. I remember, I, I remember watching, I ran away from my house to see, it was only, I don't know, I was really little, uh, to see Nightmare on Elm Street mm-hmm. in the theatre. And I was shocked because I, you know, only heard stories about children that had been molested and things like that. And at the in the end, the story is about parents that, because justice doesn't work, they kill a child molester. And this became not only super popular, but I myself have, you know, Freddy's pullover, mm. you know, and I wear it. And then there's a scene that I remember watching it the first time and then many times when Nancy is having a bath and the hand comes between her legs. And this is so powerful. And don't tell Mm. me this is not elevated, whatever. Do you know know something? You know, I was in the bath last night, right? And I, 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 (laughs) not to be too personal listeners, but I was in the bath and I, I ducked my head under the water. And yeah. it suddenly it suddenly dawned on me that because I saw that film when I was nine or eight, and it suddenly yeah. dawned on me that I have never once in the last thirty years put my head under the water to wash it without thinking about that scene. Every know, yeah. single bath I have had in the last three decades, and I've thought about that image. It's like a primal image, you know. I, yeah. Um, Anyway, we're, we're we're getting off tack, but I, one thing you did say yeah. does interest me: the fact that we have, you know, the, the fact that we've immortalized Freddy Krueger as a 
pop culture icon. I own a pair of shoes that like are, are in the pattern of his sweater. And I'm like, <laughs> how, how has this happened that we have mass marketed a pedophile as a, as, as a brand? I know. You know? <laughs> I know, I know, I know. Yeah. But actually, you know uh, what? In, in, the, the, in the neatest segue of all time, <laughs> yes. I'm going to go from, from, that epi- from that mention of child abuse to a, a, another possible mention of child abuse in your book because of all the relationships in this book of which there are many it's a kind of dickensian sprawling novel i am most fascinated by the relationship between gasper and his father juan yes and i want you to kind of shed some light on this for me because i'm still not sure because they love each other intensely yeah. and and juan yeah. has kind of devoted his his life to protecting gaspar from from his own fate and from his family and from the order so there's this this is intense love, but there is such violence between them, and there's there's yeah. one really devastating act of violence that appears when you first see it to be like extreme abuse, but then later we get this kind of Rashomon type thing where we realise there's more going on from a different angle, and I get yeah. that. I mean the bit with the window, you know what I'm talking about, yeah. yeah but yeah. then at other times. Juan just seems to be a bad, neglectful, abusive father. Yeah. And I suppose the, the broad question is, what's going on in that relationship? Well, you know, that the, 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 the Windows thing is taken from Wuthering Heights, basically. It's when Kathy, you know... Uh, no, yeah. I don't know. I'm to think now. I can't think what you mean. But... Uh, I can't... Yeah, Kathy uh, at the be- at the beginning of the story like uh, knocks on the on the window, and she breaks it and grabs the hand of what's the name of the oh, oh yes right at the yes. start like the almost like the prologue yeah exactly well that, that, yeah. that that's that, that's what was on my mind but oh, what's okay. going on there what what's on going on there well first Juan is a very um, he he loves genuinely the boy but he's uh, interest in protecting him is not just about protecting the boy, but of not giving the boy to the order. It's a mix mm-hmm. of both those things. And somehow he's conflicted on that because he has the loyalty for, for this kid, but at the same time, he's like, I'm not giving, this is the only thing I own. You took everything from me. You didn't let me have a life because as a medium, he has to be devoted to the order. This is not really a spoiler. So you won't have this. That this is the only thing that is mine. And in this, you know, I'm saying thing on purpose because there's moments when he loses sight that this child is a person (laughs) and it's not only an asset that he has to confront Mm. the order. He is. I mean, Gaspar is an asset. The order needs him. Of course, not people don't know that. Boy, well, that would be a spoiler. But anyway, he loses sight sometimes of how the boy is a boy that he loves and is loved back. And sometimes it's only an asset. Then there is the fact that Juan is very ill and Gaspar is not. So there's a lot of jealousy. You know, there's a lot of competition between father and son. Apart from the love that is there, is sometimes I see in the relationships, when I observe them, that for the father that is aging, is very tough. 
to see how the boy, how the, the this young man is blooming, and you're ending your life. So uh, to Juan, that is, he's kind of crazy. He's very perturbed because of what he has to do. He's uh, very twisted in his mind. So I think at one point of the novel, the only human thing that he has is what he feels for this child. But it's very contaminated. It's very contaminated by uh, competition. It's very com- contaminated for it's his own decadence in the mind and in his body. It's, all, it's very contaminated for the fact that he's also using the boy as an asset against the order and not only, you know, just trying to save him out of pure love, but something else. So it's a very um, complex relationship, first in, you know, terms of uh, a, a wounded, vulnerable, broken man with his child. And also in the context of, of the novel of someone that is in an, an, in an impossible position and is kind of losing his mind too. And also, it's, this is a very incorrect thing to say, but in a way, if the relationship that one has with their parents is very complex, sometimes you have like a, an alcoholic, abusive father or mother and you still... Love it, love it, <laughs> love him or her, and that's something that yeah, I that I wanted to put there, yeah. And well, that's what I took from it as well because th- this is a really strange comparison. But there's a book um, that won the Booker Prize a few years ago called Shuggy Bane. Oh yeah. Have you read it? No, but I know where this is Scottish uh, writer. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I can't remember Douglas. I can't remember his name. Uh, but yeah. he—that's um, about a, a young boy who has a relationship with his alcoholic mother. Um, and there was whole sections of of your book that kind of put me in mind of that. It's exactly that thing about. Well, put it this way: there's one there's one moment that I underlined when mm-hmm. Gaspar is thinking about his dad's mortality, and it, there's this line that just hit me in the heart where he just says, "I'm going to miss him." I'll be glad when he's gone because it will be easier to stop being sad, but I'm going to miss him. And he's just, he, he, he's, a, he's a child trapped in this kind of inescapable love for his parent. I think that's one of the saddest things. Yeah, yeah. I think Gaspar is very, there's another point in the novel where his uncle is talking to him, to, about him with a, with a friend of his, and the, the friend says about Gaspar, he's a sad boy. And his uh, uncle answers, no, not exactly. Like, we, well, doesn't matter. He gives, like, another explanation. But I think the friend is right. He's a sad boy because he's, um, he's in this impossible position because Juan is absolutely random, too. <laughs> like, one day he's, like, the sweetest thing with you and you sleep with him and he reads you poetry and he's, like, the nicest, you know, mm-hmm. articulate, physically warm with him and and the next day he wants to kill him so i mean he's very confused that way so sometimes gaspar as you do sometimes with with very traumatic relationships sometimes he it's not forgiveness he just wishes tomorrow is going to be better so he lets it past 
and say, okay, tomorrow he's going to wake up nice and maybe tomorrow and he's nice next day. Time passes like that. But it is true that the relationship with an abusive parent is one, to me, is absolutely interesting, but it's kind of, this is, uh, you know, the, 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 the person that brought you here for something. <laughs> and then, and then sometimes he cannot even take care of you and that confuses you perpetually. And uh, and in this situation in particular, I mean, he has no 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 escape. And also, Juan, when he's nice, he's nice. I'm now thinking about Heathcliff because yes, um, exactly. I, yeah. I, I hadn't thought about Wuthering Heights in this degree because I didn't know about your love for it. But the other day, I I said to somebody about Heathcliff that like no matter how toxic or how retrograde or how problematic our culture is increasingly making him. I still find him an irresistible character. No matter yeah, no matter how our standards change, I still find Heathcliff just the most compelling character. And there is an element of that to, to Wan, that you, there are things that happen and you think this should be irredeemable, but then he'll he'll tussle Gaspar's hair or he'll just say the right thing and you you and Gaspar forgive everything, you know? Yeah. Yeah, I was absolutely obviously thinking about Heathcliff, and there's a point in Wuthering Heights where Heathcliff kind of um, his own child that is dying of tuberculosis sends him to seduce Cassie's Cathy's sorry daughter that is called mm. Cathy too, and I remember reading that the first time and saying, "How cruel is this? You're sending your dying child." for an old grudge with the mother of... And still, I was still fascinated by Heathcliff, you know? And I yeah. was still, like, waiting for the movie, and when they put, I don't know, Ralph Fiennes, I was not, that's not Heathcliff. Heathcliff is much better. And, I mean, and I was, I think when I was a teen, I was in love, basically. And that doesn't mean I was looking for men like that or anything. It's not... that that Things don't work that way. But it's... Uh, I think to me it's a marvelous portrait of uh, of that of the attraction to to this kind of uh, unpredictable not only men like an unpredictable person that when you get that little glimpse of light in all, in all the darkness you are absolutely fascinated and that. Mm. I think the, the trick that Emily Bronte does with that is absolutely. We were talking about cruelty, but it's very cruel because it, yeah. you know, it forever <laughs> marks you like this is a brilliant character, and you're like, oh god, because you know, and yeah, no matter how toxic you want to make it to me, to me, he's amazing. Yeah, let's move on, bit to, to finish by talking a little bit about the supernatural aspect of this book because we haven't addressed it yet yeah so you said like right at the start that you wanted to keep it simple you wanted to use these terms that could mean a lot of things and yeah. you didn't want to over describe i won't go into it in too much i'll let people find it on their own but you've got like the darkness this yeah this sort of dangerous force that the order communes with and then there's this idea of the other place which is this kind of alternative world of horror it's sort of like a torture porn narnia yeah and they are they're both highly detailed like lots of lush detail there's one centerpiece where the darkness appears early 
in the first section of the book that is mm. like full on horror, you know. Mm-hmm. Yet, yet at the same time, all of the supernatural elements are also quite obscure, and mm-hmm. in such in such a huge book, we still end the story with no real verifiable information about the rules or well anything about this whole supernatural realm i'm assuming that was intentional it was yeah because the order it's uh, forever investigating it they don't really understand it of its rules they just found it in a way and it's very difficult to enter it and uh when Juan manages to enter, and in, when I want, I, I say, for example, I wanted to keep things simple. I call him the medium, but technically he's more like a shaman, mm-hmm. but because the medium is supposed to, uh, you know, commute with a uh, with spirits, and that's not what he does. That he opens worlds. But I liked that, you know, since the order is from when it is, and medium was like a very normal term. They just stuck with it and uh but and, uh, and a shaman is also other thing in, in in certain cultures here and i just want it to be very simple and not mess with things that i don't really understand but the fact is that it's a point of view most of the time of the order and people involved in the order but that's why it's kind of mysterious because they don't really know mm. they don't know it's there they're also investigating so the, the trick somehow is not is very is describing it in a lot of detail, but not telling you how it works, what it is, who's done it, from where it comes from, because the order doesn't know, and the versions that comes from this god that is kind of the darkness are very um, contradictory, because seemingly it speaks, but people hear different things. So they're writing down what it says that are the supposed rules, but all the rules are different. And also, since they are a very hermetic order, they keep these rules in a book that nobody can see. And uh, I chose not to open that book because first it would be impossible and it would have been very boring. But I wanted to to keep it uh, mysterious like that. And even... The, the other side that is like this alternative reality, it works different from for Juan, for example, than for Gaspar. Like, uh, I don't want to spoil anything, but they do different things when they are on, on the other side. And I used a lot of, uh, for the other side, I used a lot of paintings, really. I remember I had a lot of paintings hanging around me and I was looking at, at them and, you know, like, adding things or changing things or copying things to, to make it as detailed as I could. Um, I didn't want to do like the Lovecraft thing that when he does, when he says it was the most horrific thing ever and then he, and it couldn't be described and then he describes it. So <laughs> I just, I just describe it, you know. And <laughs> you, won't know, you won't know this, but I, I criticize Lovecraft for that about once every three episodes. <laughs> yeah, because it's so annoying, isn't it? Oh, it's but so I, annoying. Yeah. It's very annoying. Yeah. So I just, I just, you know, I just describe it and that's it. I'm not telling you, oh, it was awful. No, I, you know, you could find okay. it pretty. I don't know. Yeah. The catacombs in Paris. I don't know. They are mm. pretty to me. 
do you have any direct inspirations when coming up with that side of the story? Because it, it felt like the other place could be mm. an avenue into, I don't know, like Ambrose Bierce's Carcosa or an outcrop of Stephen King's multiverse. Because I, I have this, I, I like to think that, right, that all of these places that are through through portals or doorways or wardrobes, that they're all part of some huge collective psycho-fictional map. Yeah. I had that idea in mind, yeah, certainly. The idea where Arthur Machen to uh, a lot. Um, the old, basically, all the narratives that you open the door and you're in another world or in mm. another... There's a great story by M. John Harrison, I can't remember the name now, where there's a... There's a or Aikman, one of the two. But uh, there's a lot of weird fiction when people go to these other places that even smell. I think in, in the story it's called The Other London. And, you know, and uh, and loops like time loops, you know, people that are supposed mm-hmm. to come back in, in 15 minutes and then it's four hours and nothing happens. This kind of deviations of, uh, of reality. Well, this is a massive deviation of, of, of reality. And in a way, it has also, because of the characteristics of, of the book that has some eroticism in it, it has a lot of The Held on Hard by Kai Barker. Oh, that hadn't occurred to me. Yeah, that, yeah, of course. Yeah, it is. Yeah, because uh, the, yeah, they don't appear, the, the <laughs> you know, no, the, the Cenobites, but there's a sense they could be there lurking. I'd never thought about that. Yeah, that that's what I mean, that these stories feel like. Sorry, it sounds like I'm saying that your your other world is derivative. I'm not saying that at all. It's just I always love this idea that these places are also influenced by this collective idea of somewhere else. Yeah. You, I, I love the idea that, you know, yeah, the Cenobites could wander in and so could Aslan, you know, and then... Exactly. Oh, do, do you know what I mean? That sense of a shared psychogeography of otherness. Exactly. I find it a fascinating idea. Yeah. Yeah, yeah that, was, that, that, that was what I was thinking about. And... and... And of course, yeah, Lovecraft in a way, the mythology without the style, let's say, because mm. the mythology is fantastic. The problem is that how it's written. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah. Well, before we finish, I have to ask you one question that a listener asked me to ask you yeah. on Twitter, right? Now, I haven't read the story, so I can't comment. But Jack wants to know whether there is a connection between your short story, Adela's House, and yeah. what happens to the character of Adela in our share of night? Oh yes, but I think it's a quite interesting story because it um, it's also tells you how writing a long novel works. In the novel is four, well, really six, but four big chunks. No, let's say four big parts mm. and two smaller parts. And I always knew that there were going to be like different styles. Like, and this is not spoiler either. The first part is very, you know, road movie gone ritual. <laughs> mm-hmm. The second part is very Spielbergish, Stephen Kingish. The other part is uh, it's more. I wanted, I failed at making it like you know, like uh, with letters and stuff like Dracula, and then I just put it in London and in first person. And the, the last part is like a coming-of-age thing that ends up awful. Anyway, 
I always knew about this, and I always knew something in the book, since this was a story also about a very rich order, and especially in Latin America, power needs property. There was going to be a house in every part that was a special and important house. The first mm -hmm. house, that is the house in the jungle, is a house that actually exists. It's a house of a very powerful, I'm not going to talk about the four houses because it's boring, but this is interesting. Same house of a very, very powerful family. They built it in the 20s and they built it in the middle of the jungle. Now it's like a, a luxury hotel, you know, luxury jungle hotel, whatever. But when it was built in the 20s, it was insane. Like in the book, you know, eh? because it's kind of, why are you making a mansion here? You can't reach it. It's full of mosquitoes. It's very difficult. Those days, you don't have a car if it rains to go there. And, you know, it's absolute, it's folly to do something like that with all the money they have. And when the upper classes, those days in Argentina, they had houses in Paris, they had, you know. So um, I remember when I was little, this house existed. It was near my family house that lives up there. This is the, the, the border with Brazil. And I remember they were saying, maybe they're hiding something. And I always remember that. I never saw the house. But it was described and I saw pictures. And of course, I saw pictures and uh, it, during all my life. And I always remember my uncle saying, maybe they did it there because they were hiding something. They needed to do things that in that place hmm. it was going to be hidden so i chose that but in the second part i wanted a house that basically ate people and uh that you went inside the house and they had the house was like it was like a big mouth they ate you it ate you and it looked from outside like a very regular house it was a bit spooky because it was abandoned but nothing massively spooky no castle spooky just a house it's kind of weird because nobody lives there and, you know, has the sense of absence and abandonment that, you know, is kind of creepy. And it looks like something could be going on there, like in a ligotti way, you know. <laughs> so, uh, I, you know, I was thinking about the house and the inside it should look a bit like uh, serial killers then... Blah, blah. And then I say, oh, God, I wrote that house already. I wrote it in a short story. That is Adela's house. It's that had the house of that girl. So I brought first the house, just the house, because what I needed is the house that did this, you know, it was very mechanical. I just need a house that had people. That was it. And then, since it was the early stages of the novel, I said, okay, let's bring the girl. Why not? To see what happens, what what opens, what what is it about? And then when I brought Adela, there was another dimension in in the in, in the novel, a probably even more political dimension. She was like a, she is I think one of the the you know the like a missing link somehow, mm -hmm. and you know what happens to her that we are not going to tell is very uh, traumatic for for the kids and it, it's something that leads the trajectory of Gaspar's life and it's something that also it's another very big 
Juan cruelty that then uh, is kind of has an explanation. But anyway, yes, there is a connection, but it's not the same character. That's the thing. I, okay. I kept the name. I kept the name, and I kept everything, but it's not the same character. Like it's uh, in the in the in the short stories another person. So it's kind of multiversy. I don't really do okay. this. <laughs> don't really do this, but you know, it worked. It really worked. Well, there you go, Jack. There's your answer. Um, so all that I mean, we've talked for a long time here, Mariana. All that is left is for me to ask you the two questions I always end on. Okay. Can you recommend a book for my listeners and, and tell us why? Um, of contemporary horror, I would like to um, recommend a book that in English is translated as The Black Maybe by a Hungarian author from Hungary called Attila Veres. Attila like Attila. Its short stories is contemporary horror. It has a take on the Lovecraftian myth that I never read before. It's absolutely scary. And I think it also uses something of the East. I don't think we've read that many horror from Eastern Europe. So it's very interesting that way. It's like, how are they dealing with whatever happened there? <laughs> you know? So to me, it was uh, a revelation. And it's, it just came out. Like, it's very easy to, to get. And I would, yeah, I would, I was, I was thinking about, you know, saying maybe something else or something that was not horror, but that book was really a revelation lately for me. Like finding a, a short story writer that I adore, The Black Maybe, is called. And he's Attila Veres, like Attila the Hun, you know. Okay. That's one I haven't heard of. So I always like when I get a new recommendation. I'll check that out. Um, and my last question, Mariana, is yeah. what truly scares you? Illness, suffering, suffering of the body, um, uh, pain. Uh, it's absolutely my pain, my body, no, you know, even getting old in a way, no, not getting old as in aging. I'm not scared of aging, but getting old in the, in the sense of losing control of your mind and, and your body. I, I'm, I'm not a, a control freak, but I've noticed the, the difference, you know, in the, in the body, especially a woman, I think feels bad. I don't know. I'm a man too, but in a woman it's very obvious when you go into your second metamorphosis the first is when you're a teenager the second is now and um i don't know the in general i i mean i love for example body horror but that really gets to me i really and i like i love writing it and i love writing about pain and illness and I don't know. It's the only part, I think, where I'm really exercising something that I'm really scared of. I'm not scared of the supernatural. I'm scared of your machine breaking. My machine breaking okay. first. Then the others, yeah, well, whatever. But no, it's very, <laughs> it's very selfish. <laughs> well, let me recommend a book to you before you go. Um, okay. A book you may or may not have heard. So a book that came out last year. Um, it's called Mary, as in, you know, Mary Magdalene, just Mary. Yeah. And it's written by a guy called Nat Cassidy. 
Now I know you're a Stephen King fan, and what yeah. he's basically what what Nat has basically done is he's taken Carrie, yeah, and he's written a kind of similarly met like metamorphic story, but about yeah. menopause. Oh, great! So because it is like yeah, it's yeah. when you said it's when you said the phrase second metamorphosis because that's what yes. it's about. It's about the other transformation in a woman's life and it's i mean it is body horror it's great fun it's great fun um great. it's kind of pulpy and i think you'll like it so i would recommend it mary by nat cassidy nat cassidy yeah written down yeah. i'm cool. asking some friend to to bring it to me <laughs> well <laughs> listen well you know what nat listens to this show so i'm sure the minute he hears that he'll be in touch um it's been an absolute pleasure. We've talked for like 90 minutes, which is half an hour longer than I normally speak to guests, but it's been worth every single minute. And plus, if you're going to read a 750-page book, you probably need a bit more time to talk about it. I can't wait for this book to come out for my American listeners because I know that there'll be lots of conversation. British listeners who've already read it, you know, I hope you enjoyed this. I've enjoyed it immensely. And Mariana Enriquez, thank you for talking scared. Oh, thank you very much. I'm, I'm sorry if I talked too much. It was a real pleasure. Thank you so much. That was such a thrill. <laughs> Even though I haven't actually read the short stories that make Mariana such a key figure in contemporary horror, I still went into that feeling like I was talking to someone really special. She's got this aura of prestige about her. So you can imagine how delighted I was at how grounded and down-to-earth she is. In fact, this may piss some of you off, actually, but I found it so refreshing that she wasn't all that interested in talking about horror as a vehicle for real-world problems. Now, don't get me wrong... I actually disagree with her, in part. I think her book is a supremely good metaphor for political reality, and horror in general does serve that end, perhaps better than any genre. But, as an interviewer who tries to be progressive wherever I can, and who feels a responsibility to always address the social reality that's being refracted through the fiction, it was nice just to get away from that a little, and talk about some of the fun nasty stuff. I had an inkling that Mariana was going to be cool when she responded to my initial invitation with, sure, I'd love to, but please don't ask me the fucking women in horror question again. <laughs> Our Share of Night is a big, serious book about big, serious things, but Mariana was way more interested in the cool genre machinery of it all, floating heads and island warlocks and all that cool stuff that's just as important to this story as the political nightmare. And I've included a link in the show notes for a really good article about the Unbunchy, if you're interested. And you should be. All that said, Our Share of Night is quite a tough book to wrestle with, in my opinion. I respect it massively, and I enjoyed it hugely in the main. But it's not the easy read that the cover with the clawed, hooked demonic hand, and all the talk of black magic and demons may lead you to believe. At times, it's a really impressionistic piece of work that that feels like Kerouac and Borges and Roberto Bolano, and at others it's channeling Stephen King and, and other writers of big, epic 
horror fiction that's more familiar. The style and the focus bounces all over the place, and it has this strange lapse in the latter section that really slows things down before ramping up for the conclusion. It's an odd book in all kinds of ways, but odd in intriguing and interesting ways, and I'm not trying to put you off it, quite the opposite. I just don't want you to pick it up and then bounce off it because it defies expectation. Instead, I would say gear up for a challenge, especially because these are not easy characters to like or root for. Another thing I actually disagree with Mariana about is the idea that some of the members of the Order can still be good, that they can still be our heroes, Juan and Rosario, etc. Mariana argued that they can reconcile their knowledge of the horrors being committed in the same way that we can live with the idea of terrible things happening around the world. Empathy fatigue, you could call it. I don't agree with that comparison, actually. I think the supposedly good members of the Order represent the particular entitlement of a certain kind of rich person who's able to ignore the sins that have given them prestige and wealth just because they don't have a direct hand in it. Now, that doesn't make those characters any less compelling, but it does make them challenging in the same way that Heathcliff is challenging and and this book is challenging and I'm going to keep saying challenging, but it's really interesting and it wrong-foots you continually. Then again, many of you have probably read Mariana's short fiction, so you probably know way more about her writing style than I did going in. I'm probably speaking to the choir here. So let me know. Have you read the shorts? Would you be interested in me getting Mariana back on the show to talk about them? Have you already devoured our share of night? And what did you think? You know, the usual questions. You can reach me on Twitter, Instagram, and sometimes TikTok at TalkScaredPod or email me at TalkingScaredPod at gmail.com. New listeners, of which I think there are many after the Stephen Graham Jones episode and probably this one, please subscribe and leave a review. Downloads have now gotten to the point where I can think about approaching sponsors and that makes this show easier to make, so it's a quid pro quo, but all that engagement really helps. And thanks hugely to everyone who signed up for Patreon recently. That includes Taryn, Gillian, Maggie Q, Alyssa V, Sam, Clark, Nicholas, Charles, Claire, Chris P, Adrian, Drake and Rachel. Quite the crowd and welcome. Everyone else, remember, you can get bonus stuff, including a recent exclusive interview with the authors of The Black Guy Dies First. That's a great survey of black representation in horror movies. It's all available for a few quid a month at patreon.com slash talkingscaredpod. Right, we're done for this week, and it was a biggie, and there are a few longer episodes still to come. Because, well, the books have just been really interesting recently. I'll try not to give in to self-indulgence, but next week is another cracking conversation with Johnny Compton, all about his offbeat ghost story, The Spite House. Don't miss it, because Johnny is an absolute charmer. Until then, stay inside the salt circle, prepare for the arrival of our alien overlords, and continue to liberally block arseholes on Twitter. Read good books, and remember, it's good to be scared. <laughs>